Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm so glad, as always, to have you all with us. Um, there is a pretty dramatic development in this uh, controversies that uh, President Trump and many of his supporters have uh, generated around the election, whether or not President Trump was cheated out of victory or not. Uh, when last night Emily Murphy, the uh, head of GSA, the General Services Administration, finally issued the letter which will give the Biden team what they need, access to federal funds, office space, the ability to begin having conversations with members of the administration, uh, transferring a, a power toward Joe Biden. Of course, the president says he is going to continue to fight although he did say that he was the one who told Emily Murphy it was time to make this, uh, to to, uh, authorize uh, uh, the uh, uh, beginning of the transition. Um, Amelia Brock points out that yesterday on our show, um, former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn said that uh, even if President Trump doesn't succeed, he does need to begin the transition to the Biden administration for the health of the country. And, and of course, Senator Nunn had a lot of uh, reasons uh, for that, not the least of which was his concerns about national security uh, if we don't make this transition uh, soon. Um, and, and so that's what happened. President Trump says, yes, the transition begins formally, but I'm going to fight because I still think I won the election. By the way... Um, those of you who did listen to that show have sent me terrific notes telling me how great it was to hear from Senator Nunn. You know, he was, during his 24 years in the Senate, he was controversial in any number of ways. There were issues that he took positions on that were not uh, broadly loved by all the people of Georgia. But, but when you look back at his career now and what so many of you commented on in responding to the show we did yesterday, um, his tenure is remembered as much as anything else for his being a leader in a Senate where comedy and bipartisanship and actual rigorous intellectual debate actually sometimes took place on the floor of the Senate uh, when uh, major uh, issues were uh, being debated in the Senate. And and a lot of you uh, said you really longed for those good old days. Um, If you didn't get to hear that show, uh, you can by going to gpb.org slash PR, you'll find it there. And, and I think you'll find it to be a pretty uh, terrific conversation with Senator Nunn. Okay, a uh, lot to talk about on the show today. Let's introduce the panel. It's Tuesdays, which means uh, AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman is with me. Uh, Tamar, thanks for joining us for the show today. I know you're essentially already taking a Thanksgiving vacation, but you didn't want to miss the show today, did you? Couldn't couldn't miss the show today. Too much to talk about, but greetings from my parents' house in, in rural Virginia. <laughs> yeah. And you said you are doing the show from the bedroom in which you grew up? <laughs> yes, but it's been altered. I, my my mother a couple years ago took down all my my glorious high school p- uh, posters that had been painfully curated over the years, and now there's framed art on the walls. It's uh, ghastly. 
<laughs> well, thanks for being with us while you're on vacation. Uh, we're also joined today by Dr. Andra Gillespie. She, of course, is a professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on the Study of Race. Dr. Gillespie, thank you for being here. You're not traveling this holiday, you said. You're going to be stuck. You're not going to get to go home and see your dad and other family members. I'm sorry about that. That's okay, but we're going to make the best of it. Good. Well, I'm glad you could be with us today. We're also joined by uh, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University. And uh, Amy, uh, you're going to have a small, I think, family uh COVID bubble uh, holiday yourself right here in Atlanta. We are. As my mother many years ago said, she sang Happy Hanukkah to herself when I took the job at Georgia State and uh, moved back home after having left and kind of toured the country. So um, we've, we all went away. My brother even went over to England, and now we all live within a couple miles of each other, which is kind of bizarre on many levels. But so that way, uh, that, that, that's our bubble. We, 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 see, we see the grandparents. Well, terrific, terrific. We're joined for the first time, and I, I can't, I've been trying to figure out why it would be the first time Rick Dent, who has been a major figure in uh, the world of political consulting for a long, long time here in Georgia, but he, it is, Rick, your first appearance on the show, and I'm really glad you are here just to give people a little bit of your background. Uh, you have a deep background in terms of working with Southern governors. You f- first worked with Governor Ray Mabus, in Mississippi. You went on to uh, have a significant position working with former Alabama governor Don Seligman, uh, and you were part of that fascinating and unfortunate chapter in his career when uh, he went to prison on charges that were later determined to be uh, not necessarily on the up and up, but then you went on and worked, and where we all got to know you is when you went to work for Zell Miller here in uh, Georgia. Thanks for joining us, Rick. It's great to have you here. Well, I can answer the, the question why I have not been on the show, and that is because I have Bill Nygut stories that need to be told, and he knew that, and he, <laughs> and, and he, he banned me, and he kept me off the show. So here you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, your company is PR Strategies, right? Yes, yes. And and tell, give us just because it's your first appearance. What's the scope of the work you do with that group? Well, what we primarily do these days is uh, corporate work, but it deals with either political issues or public issues for corporations. Uh, part of that is being involved in some political campaigns if it benefits those corporate uh, clients as well. So. Mm-hmm. That explains, for example, what we're about to talk about, which is the, the spending in the Senate races. Yeah, you've really become um, a, the go-to guy for looking at spending, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But before we do, tomorrow, I do want to talk for just a moment or two about the significance of what happened late yesterday afternoon, early last evening, when Emily Murphy finally wrote a letter to President-elect Biden saying that, yes, we are triggering the beginning of the um, transition, making resources available to him uh, and and uh, allowing for conversations with administration, current administration uh, individuals. But, you know, Tamar, I don't know if you've had a chance to read the letter, but it's a it's really kind of a passive-aggressive sort of angry letter uh, 
in which she kind of begrudgingly to she says um, she won't even really acknowledge that he's the president elect. She says, I take this role seriously. And then she goes, and because of recent developments involving legal challenges and certifications of election results, I'm transmitting this letter today to make those resources and services available. She doesn't say, and it's pretty clear you're now president-elect, congratulations. (laughs) And there's more language in there in which she's very defensive about why she didn't uh, do what people thought she should have done more than a week or so ago. It's I'm, We should post this letter online. It's pretty interesting. Tamar? Yeah. Um, it's it's not kind of the typical process you have, but as far as I think the the incoming Biden administration is concerned, this this gives them what they need to get. With, you know, their their traditional that's called their beachhead teams to all of these federal agencies. They get they get actual office space. They're able to start communicating with with uh, Trump administration appointees who are on the way out. You're you know they're starting to get briefed on different issues, and it's a really important part of the process that normally isn't even reported on because it's so it's it was such a given in the past that there would be this. this this kind of peaceful, seamless transition of power. Um, and there were fears for a long time that, that it would create national security vulnerabilities because apparently a lot of America's enemies look to this transition period as kind of a, a weak point uh, for America. So, so you know, there, there's been evidence that the 9-11 attacks in part were planned during the transition process because they thought that was a, a good time to begin looking at, at attacking America. So I know that there was concern about that. And I, I think for... Uh, people in the Biden administration, the incoming folks, it's a sigh of relief at this point. So, uh, Amy, uh, if you look at the president's Twitter this morning, he is still angry. He still thinks he says, I won. We're going to continue fighting. But it's once this letter is issued and once Trump says, yes, I he claims to have authorized the letter. We don't know the reality of that. Um, It really is all over, isn't it? Yes. Um, the other big thing was that yesterday, both uh, like following Georgia, Michigan and Pennsylvania certified their results. Um, so that is another sort of large point within this. Um, and the Biden campaign, understandably so, hasn't really wasted any time. In fact, um, if you would like to apply for a position in the new administration, you can at buildbackbetter.gov. It went up last night. And the most important part of that is that they now have the ability to put up websites with the .gov, right, which means that it's an official part of uh, the United States government. And so in many ways, right, we're starting to see that move forward. But I think the certifications happening, um, the lawsuits have not fared well and continue to have major legal flaws. So that's not going to really turn into anything. And so this is more of a this is the end game, and so it's more of a question of what is said publicly as opposed, and for sort of PR reasons as opposed to what's actually happening in terms of sort of legal transitions. So, you know, I think it's actually really funny. I mean, I don't think that clearly this isn't the end yet, and I don't expect President Trump to actually make a formal concession. In fact, I'm waiting for him to say it. I've heard other people say it. They're going to look at the sort of Stacey Abrams model of, you know, sort of acknowledging that, that somebody else is going to, sort of take over the job, but not actually admitting defeat. But of course, President Trump is going to do something totally different than what Stacey Abrams did. When Stacey Abrams made that speech, we were under no illusions that, you know, she, you know, we knew she wasn't going to show up at McCamish Pavilion when, when Governor Kemp was inaugurated and we didn't expect to see her on West Texas Ferry Road. So, um, you know, here, I think there's still some open question about what else he's going to do. And so I think, 
you know, they still are going to try to litigate stuff. They are certainly fundraising because I'm still getting more texts than I should, um, trying to, you know, donate money uh, to this legal effort. But they're also now going to try to look to and sort of hope for that Hail Mary in the Electoral College. And I wouldn't be surprised if once the Electoral College vote is finalized that we hear President Trump saying something that's going to talk about his next steps. And I think the sad thing about it is, aside from how unprofessional it is um, and about how this actually demonstrates really bad character, um, He's actually now sort of like held the Republican Party uh, party hostage. And there are lots of people, even people who have been loyal to him, who harbored aspirations, who by virtue of their age and other qualifications should be in a better position to be able to run with that legacy in 2024. And now it's all going to be held hostage to whatever President Trump's wins are, which could be including telling his supporters that I'll be back in four years. Rick, um I want to pick up on a couple things that Andra said. One, uh, uh, she talked about this is kind of a sad moment, a chapter. You know, uh, Lamar Alexander, the Republican from Tennessee, was one of the uh, uh, people who weighed in yesterday and said it was time for the president to begin the transition. And the last thing he said was, he said, the last thing people remember when you leave office is the last thing you do, implying that President Trump was really uh, stepping all over whatever positive uh, Im- image he might leave behind him when he vacates the office. Right? And, and the other thing is, he is continuing to raise money. Uh, they're claiming they're raising it for the ongoing legal fight, but we know that, in fact, it's going, at least a good portion of it, into a fund for uh, his the pact that he is beginning to maintain his uh, impact in the years after he leaves the White House, right? Uh, look, to address what you just said, the, the rules don't apply to Donald Trump anymore. You just said as he's leaving office, he's going to step on whatever his legacy is. He's been stepping on himself a hundred times a day, and it does not matter. There is one half of this country that believes he may be the greatest president in the history of this nation. And nothing is going to to, to change that fact. And the problem is, right now, what he is doing is good for Democrats, but it's really bad for democracy. And that's the situation we're in right now. Amy? Amy? And it also is really harming the efforts for Republicans in the state of Georgia who are trying to focus on a runoff race that's going to determine who's going to have control over the Senate. Um, And we've seen that, you know, yesterday, Senator Perdue got interrupted at his rally being asked, you know, but wait, what are you doing to help the president? You're talking about how you're the last firewall against thing, but like, why aren't you doing more? And so we're starting to see this real division and real concern, right, that this is going to depress turnout, that it's going to, if you're saying that the system itself is illegitimate and doesn't work, why would you then encourage people to utilize it for another race? Um, I think the other side, and it's certainly what goes off of what Rick was just saying, and Andre as well, is that President Trump isn't worried about how this is affecting the Republican Party, right? That's not where his focus is, right? He's worried, to be perfectly blunt, about himself, right? What what he won, this isn't about sort of party maintenance. This isn't about sort of broader goals there. 
And that is important, right, for those who are thinking much more long-term and trying to figure out what are the next steps for the party, uh, both within the state and nationally. Um, all right. We are going to talk about how the president is, uh, is, is having an impact on the Senate runoff election here it, it, in, in a few minutes. But before we do that, I do want to look. Uh, Tamar, uh, a week or so ago, maybe a little more than that, you wrote a piece, in, and the headline of the piece was Georgia Senate runoffs to bring more nasty ads and VIP visits. Um, for the sake of just the next few minutes, uh, let's talk about the nasty ads that you uh, see coming out. And I want to get Rick in the conversation to, to give us these mind-boggling uh, numbers. But Tamar, it has been unbelievable to see what's happening on TV uh, and digital right now in Georgia. It's pretty impossible, first of all, to turn on a TV or a radio and not be bombarded with political ads. And I will say it is nice being back in Virginia where the election is over and, and I can turn on a television and not be totally pummeled with all of that. But you're right. The overwhelming number of ads, and, and Rick has great statistics on this, have been negative. And that's coming from the, the candidates themselves warning about what would happen if their opponents would win, but also a lot of the outside players that are coming in from Washington. Super PACs affiliated with the Democratic Party, with with the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as well, who uh, you know his groups have become huge spenders in this race, um, spending um, and and Rick will check me on this, but tens of millions of dollars so far uh, to to kind of send the message about the stakes here if Democrats were to to win these two seats and and it's pretty awful and, and everybody's <laughs> everybody's really sick I think of the the negative tone of these ads, but at the same time they work. Fear is a great way to get your supporters out to the polls and because the, this election is so much about um, turning out your base rather than persuading people in the middle. That's the way that, that the campaigns have decided it's going to work. Scare them into, you know, what happens if their opponent wins and, um, you know, get your people out to the polls. So, Rick, uh, let's talk about it. I always uh, caution our listeners that when we're using number, numbers don't work really well on radio. <laughs> but nevertheless, let's see if we can walk through some of the exceptional numbers you sent us uh, uh, late yesterday, your latest uh, figures on spending here, and just the top line is $257,536,650 already aired, or as campaigns do, reserved in time right. leading to January 5th, right? Talk, so talk about, start with that and give us some more numbers. Well, we, we had 90 million come in on Friday. We had 32 million come in yesterday. And the big struggle is, you know, what does this mean for the average person at home? Because the numbers are staggering even for political professionals. I figured out last week in Atlanta, they were exposed to what is called gross rating points of about 10,000. What that means for the people sitting in Atlanta, because that's the biggest market where the most money is being spent, the average viewer was exposed to more than 100 political ads in a given week. 100 ads in a given week. Uh, that, that's just unheard of. That's just unheard of. Um, a couple of things we do know from the breaking down the spending Number one, almost all of it is outside money. 
And so you can have a real debate on is this the kind of democracy that we actually want, that outside money is coming in trying to influence Georgians on how they vote. Uh, number two, it is absolutely clear right now the Republicans are outspending the Democrats. Um, I know Warnock is being outspent two to one by the Republicans. And I think the third big t- takeaway is Mitch McConnell is the, the huge gorilla in Georgia right now. He has put in about $76 million to try to influence these two races, and that makes up about 30% of the total right now. Think about it. Well, first of all, when I was in D.C., I remember covering all the efforts um, Senator McConnell was doing to kind of make sure that dark money was able to be spent in a lot of these races. A lot of the the restrictions that we saw from from 10, 20 years ago have been peeled away, especially in the aftermath of Citizens United. And and he used spending bills to peel away kind of those last few restrictions on dark money. And think about it. It's his power that um, that's at stake here. So, of course, he's going to be spending big if if the Republicans lose both these races in Georgia, he will be Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. So, of course, he has an interest to spend big here. Um, I, I, go ahead, Rick, and then we'll, I want to get and, Andre in yeah, here, too. And, and yeah, and I was just going to add, this $257 million is on top of the $202 million that was spent in the general. And, and let me make this one point. These dollar figures that we're using is only about television, radio, and digital. Has anybody gone to their mailbox recently? It does not include direct mail. It does not include polling. Yeah. It does not include phone calls. It does not include staffing. I think a week ago, the RNC said they were going to bring in 600 people to put on the ground. So we're only looking at the media buy, whereas those campaigns are spending a lot more money in other areas that we just can't see. So, Andre, one of the things that I found uh, fascinating about uh, watching the commercials and, and then, of course, hearing Rick talk about uh, Mitch Mc- the amount of money Mitch McConnell is pouring into the state through his PAC, um, I, I really don't think I ever expected to see Senator Mitch McConnell in a stand-up <laughs> appeal uh, here in Georgia. I would have never thought Mitch McConnell, who I don't think is broadly – I'm not sure how many Republicans feel about McConnell, but – uh, it is odd to suddenly see him pop up in our ad saying, I need you to fight for uh, the Republicans in the Senate. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on that, of course. But m- m- more generally, uh, Andra, what what does this say to you about democracy and, and what money has done to overwhelm the system? Well, there's a lot there. Um, so, one, I'm not surprised at all that Mitch McConnell would actually make personal appeals. I mean, as Tamara said, his job is on the line. Um, control of the Senate is on the line. And so this would be sort of the one sort of like, you know, portion of the legislative or executive branch that Republicans would hold if Kelly Leffler and David Perdue hold on to their seats. So, uh, you know, for them, this is an existential crisis. This is a life or death situation, which is why you're seeing all of this money kind of come there. And part of the reason why we're seeing so much money is money is a marker of the competitiveness of a race. And so the fact that we're seeing sort of astronomical spending sort of is a a, a marker about, one, how, uh, you know, important this race is, but also how close it is and how we can't actually sort of, you know, determine who's going to win. I think to this point about what the ad spending is, you know, 
that is important to me. But what is actually more important to me is what the ground game looks like, because whoever has the best ground game is ultimately going to be the person who wins. And it's fun and it's all well and good for super packs to waste all kinds of money on television. Right. But if they aren't backing this up by, you know, going and making sure that they're phone calling people and knocking on doors. I'm not sure that their money is actually being particularly well spent in this um, in, in, in this particular environment. So for me, you know, yes, the ads are part of what's going on here, but the most important part is the field operation. Amy? Andre is completely correct. I mean, this is a game of turnout, but some of it is, is actually getting people to turn out. And what's difficult is that this is a race of just, a few people, it is after people have already invested time to turn out in another election, and so you've got to get that. And we had record numbers of registration and turnout in Georgia, which meant that we also had a lot of first-time voters or incredibly um, non-systematic voters. So getting the information to them about what the process is, what's going on, getting them to turn out is really on some level, that information is really more important. I think the other thing is we do have, um, particularly based on the information that Rick was sending us last night, a really fascinating natural experiment going on that we can see what are the implications because the studies are a little bit mixed about how effective negative ads are as opposed to either positive ads or what we call contrast ads, where you're explicitly sort of talking about the difference between you. And there's at least some studies that suggest that Positive ads can be more helpful, um, that negative ads are not useful when they, for example, come from outside groups, and that people can respond really positively to contrast ads. Um, and there's also the fact that there is a lot of emerging studies about differences between groups. So, for example, women respond much more to positive ads as well as to contrast ads as compared to men. Older voters a lot of times like to see more positive ads and contrast ads. And so I think in that sense, one of the main things that I'm really struck by is the degree to which the uh, Republicans are all in. I mean, it's basically 100% negative ads, whereas we're seeing a majority of the ads coming out of the Democratic candidates and the Democratic PAC being um, contrast and positive ads. So I'm curious to see what happens in the end. I want to pick up on that, Rick, because uh, you broke that down for us uh, in the memo you sent us. Um, you you say you say uh, what are we being fed as viewers, as consumers of the ads by the biggest spenders, right? Exactly. You say yeah. Warnock is seventy three percent contrast ads. What's it? What's no? He said Warnock seventy three percent contrast ad. The kind of ad Amy just talked about, right? That's right. Uh, Ossoff is doing a little positive, and I'm not being a partisan here. These are just the numbers right now. And the Republicans are 100% negative. And we, we all know what this campaign is about if you watch the advertising. It's the crooks versus the socialists. Who do you want? Do you want to, you want to vote for the crook who stole money? You want to vote for the radical socialists? And that is what is going to be pumped into our living rooms all during the holiday season. So Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> so, you know, one of the Andra? things that I, 
actually found, you know, sort of interesting about the ads was I remembered when I worked in D.C. kind of being taught by my boss, sort of like this is sort of the arc of what an ad sort of cycle looks like when you're on television. You start off positive mainly because you're introducing yourself. You go negative on your opponent to drive their favorables down. Um, your favorables will get driven down, too. At the end, you clean it up by sort of coming back to the positive pivot. And I think the idea of, I mean, and I was very shocked by Kelly Leffler in particular about how hard she came on Raphael Warnock pretty much the day or two after uh, the general election without any of the introduction. So, you know, I thought she was going to go back to the farm girl in Illinois kind of ads and sort of how I worked my way up and then self-made. And the fact that she went there and the fact that I expected tropes. I expect the national troops to be a part of this election. So the socialist moniker, particularly against John Ossoff, you expect things about defunding the police and law and order, but those are racially loaded. But the fact that she went there and then like the first thing that was out of the gate was the Jeremiah Wright ads, which are completely disingenuous. So aside from the fact that you're treading like sort of old water and everybody knows that it's the idea that you selectively edit to try to one market to sort of your base who might clutch their pearls going, Oh my gosh, Raphael Warnock is a preacher like <laughs> Jeremiah Wright, who uses the Lord's name in vain from the pulpit. When We all know that that wasn't what he's saying, and we've all seen the rest of the clip to know what the critique was, right? But then also sort of levying that critique as other, as though black people don't get to criticize America and somehow they're unpatriotic when they do so. Is just like There's just so much sort of about it that's, you know, not just surprising, and we'll see how effective it is, but that's also just really problematic because it is tapping into sort of, you know, old stereotypes in pretty pernicious ways. Um, I've got to get to a break. I know everybody wants to jump in on this conversation, but I'm already really late. Sam Burmistaz is like shaking a fist in my ear saying, take the break already. So Sam, just for you, we'll do it and come right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman, a Rick Dent, a, a Georgia media consultant, and Professors Amy Steigerwald and Andre Gillespie uh, with us today. I want to do one quick thing, and then I know you all want to jump in again, because this is with the way you describe this to us, Rick. Uh, um, you t- tell us that in the Purdue race, Purdue's campaign is putting on 100% negative ads. The Senate Leadership Fund, which supports him, is 100% negative. You say the Ossoff campaign is 14% contrast. Here's what I do. Here's what he wants to do, basically. 30% negative and 56% positive, which is, I think, pretty fascinating. Um, And you tell us that Warnock is 73%. Uh, contrast. So I, if you don't mind, you guys, I know you really all have so much you want to say, but I want to throw something out because, Amy, I think you uh, uh, spoke to this, especially talking about women. When I look at the Warnock campaign right now, first of all, we know he put out that very funny ad about, you know, I eat pizza with a knife and fork. That's what they're going to accuse me of. I mean, it was a smart, funny ad. I once stepped on a crack and they're going to. But beyond that ad, he has also. The question is, does it work in the face of such massive attacks? 
He's also sat down in, in front of a camera, talked in a very candid, sort of casual way to people saying, you know that's not true about me. I'm not this and that. And I just wonder when you're assaulted by so much negative advertising, it would be fascinating to see how that kind of strategy, in addition to the attacks you yourself launch, works. Yeah, so the studies are really sort of mixed on this, and some of it goes into the psychology. So Tamar's right that many times, right, we respond to negativity, we respond to fear, and we always remember negative more than we remember positive, right? Ask people about their worst meal, they'll remember that, and you have a hard time remembering your favorite meal, right? So that's sort of in our brains. But at the same time, when there is, in fact, a lot of negative and you start to sort of zone it out, right, polarization comes into play. We don't really pay attention on some level to negative ads from the other side. But ironically, we do pay more attention to the contrast and positive ads that come from everybody, especially when they are um, in comparison to a lot of negative ads. The other side of it is, right, is that Raphael Warnock has to do, right, he needed to introduce himself. And I really agree with Andra that it's somewhat surprising that Senator Leffler has not done that because she's not actually really well known to people. She ran an incredibly uh, targeted base campaign during the jungle primary. Um, and she, in some ways, also has to make inroads with those who were very strong Collins supporters. Um, she's got ground to make up there, right? There are a lot of people that were strong supporters of Collins that are not so sure that they also want to vote for her. So Northwest Georgia is kind of a place that she needs to, to do some work and things like that. And so all of this together means that you need to think forward because this is now a general election and you do in fact want to get independence. And the final thing is that Purdue originally got a number of votes from people who also voted for Biden. And so if he wants to get back those votes, he's also got to think very carefully about how he's presenting his claims as the Senator Leffler if she wants to go with him. Hey, Rick, both Ossoff and Warnock have done a number of ads in which they just kind of looked into the camera and tried to be very calm and talk in a positive way about uh, the future and that. What, as a media consultant, um, What's your take on the, the ability of those ads to counter the assault of negativity? I guess we won't know until Election Day, really. Um, I'm not sure. With $257 million being spent on advertising, that it's going to amount to a hill of beans. I, I think what polling tells us is that we have two groups of people who live in completely different realities. They have their own worlds, and they know how they're going to vote, and there's no one who's really undecided. And I think the media consultants and the TV stations are the only people who are going to be happy uh, after Election Day. Um, and I think the extraordinary thing about the gulf between the two groups right now is that unlike past years, there's no bridge between the two that anyone can see or figure out. And that's probably the... Uh, most dangerous thing about where we are as a country right now. 
uh, I love Tamar that Rick just talked about the the TV stations being uh, the happiest of all. In my 20 years at Channel 2, the salespeople always used to come to me and say, why can't you get the presidential campaigns to put more money? We're not getting enough ad revenue. I'd say because George is not in play. And they really thought somehow that it was up to me to get him to come in. Well, George is in play and they're making a lot of money. <laughs> Remember which station it was in the, the 2017 special election between Handel and Ossoff, but one of them did create a new, like, short-running public affairs show so that they could run ads in between them, so they could spend that money. And I think one thing that's pretty amazing is right now they're kind of running out of time slots at this point to buy uh, for these advertisements because there's just such a flood now. Yeah, there's very little inventory left, which is why these campaigns book ahead and why Rick Dent can talk about the massive amounts of money that have already been booked for time in the weeks to come. Andra? Yeah, well, I mean, so in response to Tamar's question, it was those digital add-ons on channels now that are, you know, sort of like your knockoff HTV and your classic TV stations that are often attached to networks that actually end up getting some of the runoff. So when you're watching, like, your old reruns of, like, Father Knows Nuts, all of a sudden... You're saying political ads, and that very well could be because the main channel doesn't have any space anymore. I kind of want to come back to kind of like the Leffler sort of Warnock thing and sort of and, – and, and, and it's in part because I think it's important, especially in terms of how you respond. I have actually been somewhat surprised at the test that, that uh, Reverend Warnock has taken. So he's certainly taken to the one being preemptive, right, because we knew that these attacks were going to come, and I think he knew that his theology was going to get attacked. Um, but he's also sort of responded in a, a transcendent way that I wouldn't have expected. So I wouldn't have ever classified Raphael Warnock being sort of the pastor in Martin Luther King's pulpit as being sort of the most racially transcendent um, sort of figure, especially given his stances on social justice. And I think uh, Senator Leffler calculated that when she did attack him, sort of a la Jeremiah Wright, that he wasn't going to do what Barack Obama, who is a transcendent candidate, would do, which is to throw Reverend Wright under the bus and disavow all of that. And he couldn't credibly do it because he's got 15 years of sermons that have been televised that would sort of speak to something different. And so it's not just sitting in the pulpit, it's that you were actually in the pulpit saying this stuff. Um, so I've actually been surprised at how muted he has been um, in this. And I do wonder how effective it is. I mean, you know, before Donald Trump was relevant, the prevailing idea was that uh, we lived in a norm of equality, and so you couldn't say overtly racist things and get away with it. And, of course, Donald Trump has completely challenged that. But we have to consider, and we still don't know the answer to the question yet, is whether or not Trump is an outlier because of his outside celebrity before he became president. That sort of inoculates him from having to be held accountable for things like making ridiculous comments um, about uh, different people groups. Uh, but in this case, you know, I've been surprised that, uh, Reverend Warnock and his allies, allies haven't been as forceful in saying that, you know, if you're going to bring stuff like this up, you're basically sort of questioning black people's right to be patriotic or black people's right to ask for better things. And, like, that's not acceptable and that's not American. So, you know, I'm very curious to see sort of as these attacks don't relent how Warnock is going to respond in kind in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Rick, I want to give you the last word, and then we're going to take another break because I've got a, I've got another subject I'm really eager to hear you talk about. But before the break, Rick, give us your final thoughts on the commercials. I was going to say something about the TV stations being happy. You know, if you're a political yeah. campaign, you pay you pay the political rate, which is the lowest amount that they can charge. But all these PACs and outside money, they have to pay the going rate. 
And we know in November, because it's market forces, sometimes they were paying as much as 10 times above the political rate bill, 10 times. But who yeah. cares when you got this yeah. kind of money? Yeah. And because it was November and a ratings period, and they really had to pay the highest prices is what you're saying, right? All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the... Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I have another subject I'm really eager to hear the panel talk about, which is, is the Georgia Republican Party and the Trump campaign, are they actually creating, starting a war that is going to have long-lasting impact and maybe have a huge impact on the runoff election? We'll be right back. So the Georgia election has now been officially certified. Brian Kemp signed off on it, although he said, oh, I'm very troubled about uh, this, uh, some of the, the, uh, the signature matching that doesn't go on with absentee ballots. Um, uh, we now, we had that ha- the hand recount uh, said it was all done as well as possible. Biden still wins. They're now going to do a machine recount. But President Trump continues to attack Georgia, including Governor Kemp, certainly Brad Raffensperger, um, Rudy Giuliani attacks Georgia. There was fraud in the election. And here's Sidney Powell, Sidney Powell, whose theories about the election are so wacky that she was even thrown off the Rudolph Giuliani legal team. That's how wacky she is. But here's what she said on Newsmax Saturday night. Georgia's probably going to be the first state I'm going to blow up, and uh, Mr. Kemp and the Secretary of State need to go with it because they're in on the Dominion scam with their last-minute purchase or award of a contract to Dominion of $100 million. The State Bureau of Investigation for Georgia ought to be looking into the financial benefits received by Mr. Kemp and and, uh, the Secretary of State's family about that time. And another benefit Dominion was created to award is what I would call election insurance. That's why Hugo Chavez had it created in the first place. But I also wonder where he got the technology, where it actually came from, because I think it's hammer and scorecard from the CIA. Okay, so normally we don't play this kind of stuff, but because it just contributes to this craziness. But the fact of the matter is that people are taking it seriously in the state. Listen to just a little of the Stop the Steal rally and one speaker Saturday at the Georgia State Capitol. And if Republican traitors like Kemp are not willing to show up for us, and Mitt Romney, and Mitt Romney, and the rest of them, then we will not be willing to show up for them. Okay, okay, Tamar Tamar Hallerman, the the question here is, this craziness actually has the potential to suppress Republican votes in the runoff election, doesn't it? It absolutely does, especially if voters don't think that their their votes are going to be counted fairly. Um, yes, it could very much cause that. And we saw Lynn Wood, a, a prominent Atlanta attorney who who was suing, um, you know, the state, sort of not not on behalf of the Trump administration, but sort of kind of on a parallel track. You know, he he was tweeting the other day that that 
if if uh, Purdue and Leffler don't do more to kind of back up the cause that, that he wouldn't show out for them. I'm not exactly clear how much of a influence this lawyer has on on a lot of these Republican voters in Georgia, but it does speak to the um, the challenges it could have for for folks. But I think it could have an even bigger impact on 2022 when you have not only Brad Raffensperger on the ballot again, but Brian Kemp and the, the potential that they could get primaried on their right. Yeah, you know, Rick, that strikes me as what's really going to be interesting, that Brian, that the president of the United States is essentially inviting someone to primary the governor, Brian Kemp, in 2022, just as he's doing the same with Mike DeWine in Ohio, uh, where uh, he's so unhappy with DeWine, he tweeted out not long ago, I wonder who's going to run for governor in 2022 in Ohio. Rick? Yeah, and let's not forget, Brian Kemp knows better than anybody about the power of Trump, because remember how Kemp won. They were basically tied. Trump got involved, and I've never seen it. Kemp's numbers went straight up in the air. So he understands the, the, the power of Trump. The, the big question is going to be, both in the Senate race and in, in two years from now, people forget this about Trump voters. They are low propensity voters. Until 2016, these people didn't vote. They didn't show up. They didn't care. They're really not Republicans. So the question is going to be, if Trump is not at the top of that ticket, will they come out, especially in this, you know, this crazy environment? And look, I got to say one thing about Sydney getting kicked out of getting kicked off the legal team that's like having mo that's like having mo and larry kick curly out of the three stooges i mean how 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 crazy do you have to be for the crazy people to look at you and go you know you're a little bit out there I just had, I had to say that. All right. I had to say that. That's a great moment, Rick. All right. I want to, uh, Amy and Andre, I now want to play you a different soundbite because I think this uh, kind of speaks to what Rick's talking about as we move forward. On CNN last night, um, uh, Jeff Duncan was interviewed, uh, and he went on the air right after news broke that the uh, uh, GSA was uh, uh, allowing the transition to begin. And here's just a little bit of what Duncan, the lieutenant governor, had to say. I respect the decision to start the transition process. Uh, you know, I think it's one that's important for us to, to make sure that we, we are an orderly nation. Uh, I also think for the Republican Party, this is a you know, a, a starting point, or at least points us in the direction of starting to talk about what, you know, potentially GOP 2.0 looks like, you know, that could, because there, there's a little bit of a crossroads going on. Uh, the top of the ticket obviously did not win at this point, uh, does not look that way. But we watched Republican legislatures all over the country uh, continue to strengthen their majorities. We watched Congress uh, become even more Republican uh, and gain seats. And so I think we're going to begin that conversation um, over the coming weeks and months. So, okay, Amy and Andra, Amy, you go first. GOP 2.0, he said it several times last night. Jeff Duncan is positioning himself in a very different way from uh, what the most uh, strident Trump supporters are and suggesting there is a new path forward for Georgians in a post-Trump era. Yes, it's very reminiscent of what we heard after 2012 with the 
um, sort of uh, what the when they looked back over sort of what had happened, the issues with the Romney campaign, and there was a lot of emphasis on the idea that the Republican Party needed to expand the tent and ensure that it was sort of reaching out. Um, the irony, of course, is that it went back inward. Um, that was sort of the opposite of what President Trump did. And it's not shocking that we would start to see that again, because on the one hand, he's totally right that there were a lot of down-ballot gains that the Republican Party had. But what we also saw was a lot of big shifts in areas away from Republicans that are um, very concerning for them, such as Cobb County now being right, really quite blue. And that was not simply right in the presidential race, but the new sheriff and things like that. So we're seeing the suburbs are becoming more blue and we're seeing that in other places. And it really does suggest uh, having to rethink, because I should note, right, every single House Republican that was managed to flip a seat was either a woman, a minority or both. Right. That is, in fact, showing where the future goes. And so the question is, will the broader party capitalize on that? Andre, Andre, is there going to be a fight for the soul of the Republican Party in Georgia or is Trump likely to just remain the dominant force? Um, I think that there is going to be a fight. Um, a part of me hopes that there is a fight because uh, we want a really strong two party system. And so my concern and it's been my concern for the last four and a half years has been that Republicans uh, aligned with Trump to get power. What they didn't bargain for was a cult of personality that they can't control. And so you still see that cult of personality at play with people making really unconstrained kind of comments that don't make a lot of sense strategically. And you even see uh, experienced or established politicians making short-term gains uh, that could actually end up jeopardizing the rest of their political careers, right, because they're too worried about what Trump is going to tell his base. And so I just see here a collective action problem that really hasn't started yet, which is Republican politicians being willing to risk their political seats to stand up to Trump. Trump's going to take a few of them out. He can't take all of them out. And I really am waiting for Republicans to have that revelation that when you stand up to him, right, you can actually get him to change and you can actually tamp down on this. And that this is an effort of leadership, right? You have folks who rethink things, right, because they've been misinformed. If you just went and told them something different, you're not going to win them all over, but you're going to win some of them over. And that's actually sort of a true some test of, of leadership and character. Uh, Rick, give, give us about uh, 20 seconds or so, and tomorrow you the same before we uh, run out of time. Uh, again, the, the theme I've, I've, I've tried to harp on, this is good for Democrats. This is horrible for democracy. Uh. Tomorrow? Yeah, I don't think the Trump era is over just yet. Trump has not ridden off into the sunset. I think so far he's shown that he wants to stay engaged in the Republican Party. And until he truly uh, leaves, it's going to be really hard for Republicans to uh, step out from under that influence. That's it. Last word, Tamar Hellerman on today's show. Tamar, thank you. Uh, Rick, Dent, what, Rick, come back. I, we'd love to have you on today. Andre Gillespie and Amy Sagerwalt, you know how much we and our listeners love you. So thanks to you. You all have as happy a Thanksgiving as you possibly can uh, under these really awful circumstances. But you'll enjoy yourselves. I know it. Uh, tomorrow we're going to talk COVID-19 on the day before everybody goes off to celebrate. Have some of our best public uh, health uh, uh, experts on the show to talk with you 
about that. I'm looking forward to that show. Uh, we'll be we'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask. I don't even want to tell you get a flu shot. You should have done that a couple of weeks ago. Um, start thinking about voting. See you tomorrow.